So drones have become more and more a part of this process, whether indoors, outdoors, all of this, right? Um, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, exterior, interior, beginning to assess for threats. Um, and so bans that restrict the use of DJI drones or Autel drones that are an order of magnitude cheaper than anything U.S. made, I feel are um, are being fairly short-sighted. Mm. And I feel are being those decisions are being made um, in a bubble that does not consider the immediate effects that those decisions will have on public safety's ability to do their job. So while I am all about moving in a direction that gets DJI and Autel out of the public safety space, decisions like that that are made absent a viable alternative that still prepares uh, law enforcement officers with tools to go in and effectively do their jobs, um, again, short-sighted. Mm -hmm. They're effectively impacting the safety not only of those officers, but also of the communities that they're meant to support. So politics are certainly at play right now, but we really, we really need to have the bigger picture in mind. And I think that's why, like, you know, Texas is a great example. They've really punted the issue for another two years because they were really um, intending until recently to follow suit with Florida and do a broad ban on DJI and Autel for mm -hmm. use in public safety. Mm -hmm. But having observed some of the challenges that Florida ran into, uh, Texas, uh, rightfully so, punted on that issue. And law enforcement officers still have the option, as they should, to utilize the best tool for the job. And the best tool for the job continues to be DJI products. Punted, two years till the archives ready. In this episode of Austinpreneur, we hear from the CEO and founder of Dark Hive, John Goodson. John is a veteran of the U.S. Navy, where he was a combat technician for the Navy SEALs. He also served in the Department of Energy, where he managed a team of software developers building military software applications. At Dark Hive, John and his team are building the future of small autonomous drones. The company has won millions of dollars in government contracts, primarily from the U.S. Air Force, for their drone technology. Earlier this year, Darkhive also raised a seed round of $4 million in which Capital Factory participated as an investor. John went to the University of Texas at Dallas, is based in San Antonio, and makes frequent trips to see us in Austin. He's another Texan entrepreneur treating our whole state as one big entrepreneurial ecosystem. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Austinpreneur Podcast. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. This episode of Austinpreneur is brought to you by Iugo. You can manage your business more efficiently and focus on what really matters with accounting services by Iugo. I-O-O-G-O. They will handle the load for you, making accounting easier than ever for your business. Visit their website and learn more at iugo.com. I-O-O-G-O.com. 
All right, let's rock and roll. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, man. Happy to be here. Today, you're CEO of Dark Hive. We'll get into that, one of our portfolio companies here at Capital Factory. But man, give us a quick intro on, on how you got to this point of, of you know leading a, a high growth tech startup uh, here in 2023. Yeah, man. Um, it's been about 10 years in the Navy. I was a combat technician supporting the West Coast SEAL teams uh, for the majority of that time. I did four tours in Afghanistan, um, observed a lot of the difficulties for employing technologies of all sorts, you know, whether it's communications, drones, other stuff, um, on the battlefield. And was just, I think, continuously amazed at how little uh, warfare had evolved since Vietnam, frankly. And then I think even as we're observing in Ukraine, um, with trench warfare, not too much further than World War One in some cases. Um, and getting out in 2016, um, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to be recruited into a national lab, um, got thrown into a project management role I had absolutely no business getting into. Um, leading a software team, I was nowhere... Uh, qualified to run and just through a lot of patience from some very very talented engineers learned software development life cycle learned a lot of the um, back end of the technology challenges that really um, I'll, I'll say afflict <laughs> uh, defense tech solutions and and why they struggle so much to transition meaningful to field meaningfully to field and then um, transitioned into a small defense tech company. Um, again, just further, uh, further exposure to all of the different challenges we face uh, from a sensor side, hardware and software, from data analytics um, all the way up into you know software as a service based uh, you know frameworks and uh, a lot of the tooling that's available today, and ultimately getting to the point where you know I got to revisit this experience that I'd had uh, personally in Afghanistan of watching these incredibly expensive platforms, um, you know, through no fault of their own in these very austere environments uh, crash repeatedly, need to be recovered because of the high cost and uh, low number of these platforms that were available to us organically um, at, the, at the SEAL platoon level. And, and just kind of realizing that what we need to do is get to the point where these platforms provide outcomes, they provide insights. And then after having provided these insights, they're done. They never need to be recovered. I don't care what happens to them after that because they help me deliver an outcome when it's most meaningful, you know, when it's life-saving. And this was in late 2021 when we started Darkhive. And what we've found uh, through the reports from the conflict in Ukraine is that the thesis we formed um, is very much relevant outside of the theater of Afghanistan and the global war on terrorism. It is incredibly relevant for strategic competition with pure adversaries going into the future. This concept that drones are not these exquisite platforms. They are not these uh, systems to be treasured and recovered. 
They are a means to an outcome. And that outcome very well may just be, I am here, an adversary is there. And that key piece of information, if delivered via a platform that is cheap and disposable, is enough. And ultimately, what we found is that the preferred platforms to deliver that information today are all made in China. They are made by companies, great companies like DJI and Autel, where the platforms are uh, produced in China. They are not uh, National Defense Authorization Act compliant. Um, they are not on the blue SUAS list. Um, they have not gone through that um, rigorous review process to um, find their way onto that list and, are, and will never go through that process. But what they are is uh, abundant. They are commercially available, and they are very, very good. DJI and Autel make the best products on the market when it comes to drones. But there are a lot of concerns about where they come from, and I think valid concerns. And the fact that the most widely utilized tactical drone in the world today arguably is the DJI Mavic 3, that's a problem because it's a commercially, it's a commercially produced drone the company has, you know, publicly stated no interest in supporting tactical operations, you know, no military operations, whether for Russia or for Ukraine or anywhere else. They've been very, uh, they've been very direct about that. And again, I'll say it again: nobody makes a better product today in the drone space than DJI. And this is a problem when those platforms are the go-to for tactical operations. That's really the, the genesis of our whole company is I don't care about what is happening with any other U.S. Uh, drone manufacturer. All I care about is that DJI is the number one tactical drone provider in the world, and they don't want to be, and they shouldn't be, for a number of reasons. We have to have an alternative. So coming out of the military community, observing the problems firsthand, and really trying diligently to offer a solution to DJI is, is really what we're focused on. And this is, there's been legislation passed, right? Where, where like the U.S. government agencies of all sorts can't use these drones at this point. Is that correct or help me understand that? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so there are a number of restrictions in place, particularly for um, federal entities in the mm -hmm. use of DJI drones, Autel drones, drones that are not on the blue SUAS list. And several states have similarly imposed bans on uh, non-Blue SUAS platforms being utilized for public safety operations. Um, and what I'll say is that that is fine as long as there is a viable uh, U.S.-made alternative to fill that gap. Because in the United States today, and really all over the world, um, drones are increasingly being utilized to support public safety operations. You know, the, the best use cases I can describe are um, the first room problem set. You know, if uh, a public safety organization, law enforcement organization, is serving a high-risk warrant and they want to avoid exposing officers to harm, it is easier to get a small robotics platform into a room and to assess whether or not there is a threat than it is to send in a law, a law enforcement officer and risk their life in that process. 
So drones have become more and more a part of this process, whether indoors, outdoors, all of this, right? Um, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, exterior, interior, beginning to assess for threats. Um, and so bans that restrict the use of DJI drones or Autel drones that are an order of magnitude cheaper than anything U.S. made, I feel are, um, are being fairly short-sighted. Mm. And I feel are being, those decisions are being made um, in a bubble that does not consider the immediate effects that those decisions will have on public safety's ability to do their job. So while I am all about moving in a direction that gets DJI and Autel out of the public safety space, decisions like that that are made absent a viable alternative that still prepares uh, law enforcement officers with tools to go in and effectively do their jobs, um, again, are short-sighted. Mm-hmm. They're effectively impacting the safety not only of those officers, but also of the communities that they're meant to support. So politics are certainly at play right now, but we really, we really need to have the bigger picture in mind. And I think that's why, like, you know, Texas is a great example. They've really punted the issue for another two years because they were really um, intending until recently to follow suit with Florida and do a broad ban on DJI and Autel for mm-hmm. use in public safety. Mm-hmm. But having observed some of the challenges that Florida ran into, uh, Texas, uh, rightfully so, punted on that issue. And law enforcement officers still have the option, as they should, to utilize the best tool for the job. And the best tool for the job continues to be DJI products. Punted. Two years till the dark hive's ready. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, I, uh, it, is a, it is a steep hill to climb. Again, I, as much as uh, you know, we, can, we can have the political discussion about um, the need to get DJI out of these spaces, it is a need, but I, I will take my hat off. Uh, I will take my defense and my public safety hat off for just a moment and say no one makes a better product, and anyone who says they do is trying to sell something. <laughs> yeah. And as you tra- transitioned from military into entrepreneur life, what are some of the skills you picked up in the military that you're using today as an entrepreneur? Man, great question. I think one of the things that the community that I came from was all about trying to understand the the immediate need of Mm -hmm. the groups that we were supporting. So for me, as a support guy, um, wasn't a SEAL, you know, that didn't go through buds, didn't have to do all that stuff, but had to show up and be able to uh, listen, be able to um, divorce ego from the operations that I was meant to come to the table and present what I could do and could offer to provide potential for outcome that you know could either keep my platoon safe or could get us to a high value target um, and again just deliver outcome and a lot of times um, that that meant listening that meant generating consensus that meant um, being willing to say very quickly when I could not provide value and I'll say what I have observed on the outside is that that is equally as important 
is being able to take the business development salesman hat off and just have honest conversations with people, even when they lead to a conclusion that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a place with a, you know, a, a place with a funded contract or a, um, a, a home within a unit that you really want to support. Um, and then I think the, the other piece that I really took from my military service as I'm thinking about it, and I reflect on it quite often, is this idea that um, you, you earn your place on the team every day. There's never a point, you know, and this, this is a part of the, <laughs> of the SEAL ethos that I think my, uh, that I think my community kind of uh, uh, ripped off a little bit. You know, <laughs> they say, uh, you know, there's, there's a part of the SEAL ethos that says, uh, or the SEAL creed that says you earn your trident every day. You know, and the trident is the insignia that uh, SEALs wear in the uniform. It's very, it's very well, uh, well known, well recognized. But uh, it got ripped off by my community, I think uh, several others in the groups that, uh, that I worked with. And it said, you earn your place on the team every day. There's never a point where you get to fold your arms, lean back and say, well, you know, I'm executive so-and-so. And therefore, you know, I don't, I'm not responsible to anybody. You're always responsible. Every day you roll up, you're a part of a team, and it doesn't matter what role you serve in the team, you are responsible to the team in that role. Mm-hmm. And there never comes a point where you're not responsible to the team. And I, I think really owning that and trying to understand that um, being, it's my first time being a CEO, um, and it, it, feels, it feels weird even saying it, and like, you know, it ultimately just feels like um, I'm more responsible to to people than I ever have been before. I don't feel I don't feel more authority. I just feel more responsibility to others, and I think that that ultimately stems from the military service and just knowing that's what that means. I'm just more responsible, and I have to earn it more every day. And I know the rest of my team feels the same way. Mm-hmm. So tell us tell us more about Dark Hive as, as a as a startup. Like, what are some of the the big milestones you've achieved in the last six, 12 months. I know there's been a, been a few, so maybe just a few that, that get you most excited. You know, you have these ideas and they seem, they, they seem, they seem important and on point when you're getting the company off the ground. And thankfully <clears throat> we've had so many of them validated mm. through um, milestones over the last 12 years. You know, first of which was um, through our outstanding par- partners at uh, a DIU, National Security Innovation Capital, got our first, what I'd call our first real big uh, contract um, and got a million dollar award with them to really dig into the hardware problem. Following that, in um, May of this year, we, through leveraging some of our phase one awards with uh, AppWorks, we were able to uh, get a phase one direct to phase three IDIQ award. And that was really important. This is a lot of what I um, learned through some really amazing mentorship at my last company is like the importance of understanding strategic contracting. And through being in the right place with the right time, at the right time with the right idea, we were able to take a phase one straight to a phase three. And a lot of people don't realize you can do these things. but, and this is the reason why I think it's so important that people understand how powerful SIBRs are and how important they are to small businesses. 
have a whole side conversation on that. <laughs> but uh, that phase three award is really important. Um, it's ultimately um, kind of what unlocked the the interest in our uh, in our seed round. Yeah, you know the one that we uh, actually just closed today. So it's nice. really cool. Nice <laughs> money's rolling in. Yeah, thanks, man. And um, you know, all of these things have just kind of been compounding and rolling over themselves. I mean, and you know, to lead on to a million dollar award with OUSD R and E uh, to lead into five uh, selected funded uh, phase two SBIRs. Um, so, you know, these, these have all been really important, but I think most importantly, they've been indicative of the fact that, you know, the core thesis, the founding thesis was on point. Um, it's going to be really, really hard to do what we're proposing. Um, but we have no excuse at this point. We have been successful in, uh, government contracting and we have been successful in fundraising. And so at this point, any failure <laughs> is is on us in execution, mm-hmm. and now we really owe it to our government customers, to um, the investors who jumped on board with us and and believe in what we're doing to get this done. So I mean, those are the it's a big activity over the last twelve months, right? And <laughs> so so you were able to go down and unlock some non dilutive capital from from partners in DIU and, and that ultimately attracted these outside investors to come in, I guess. And, and then what was it like, what is it just that, Oh, like the Pentagon's interested in this. We want to invest or is there anything more that you found in the investor psychology that really got, Oh, wow, well, this thing's real. Let's, let's put in you know a few million bucks. I think what I've kind of observed is that, um, you know, <laughs> I, I probably, I probably should have more, inside information on this than I do. But, you know, just just strictly from a, an interaction perspective, I've seen so much more, uh, I think, valid interest in defense tech investment over the last uh, 18 months. And I'm glad, I'm really glad because it, it's showing that, it's showing that VCs are, you know, even, the, you know, a lot of whom who have not previously really thought much about defense tech are seeing the, the value and the importance. Um, and really, I mean, honestly, the, uh, uh, I think it, in, in cases where it's a sound investment, you know, the risk that it buys down mm-hmm. when you have the prospect of non-dilutive capital through SBIR grants, OTA awards, all these other things that are becoming available to small business that are really trying to tackle defense problems. It's just been, it's been very encouraging and you know, through this process of evolution of investor interest and buy-in to companies not only doing software-based solutions for defense, but mm-hmm. also doing hardware. Because I'll say that when we were getting started you know, in late 2021, um, it was like we were walking in the door with two strikes against us. Yeah. You know, oh, you're a defense tech company. Okay, strike one. Oh, you do hardware, strike two. Like, say one more wrong thing and this thing's tanked. Yeah. And, you know, and then we, of course, always said the wrong thing. Which, <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, and that's changed. I think that's really changed. I, I see more and more defense tech companies um, digging in, finding success in VCs that are, are game. They're excited, you know, and, they're, and they get it. I yep. feel like they get it more than I, than I think even some of them did a year and a half ago. Yep. Yeah, it seems like 
it's the hot spot in, in VC right now in a time where the broader conversation is how hard it is to raise money, how little deals are going on. There's more and more deals going on in, in dual-use defense, and uh, you even see the big the big tier one firms, you know, kind of dropping their narrative, pushing the ball forward. And, and how did you get connected with Capital Factory originally? Oh man, um, <laughs> Google. Google, really? <laughs> and not not like you know, like oh, you know, like you know, Google, because we're in Austin, you know, and I met some Google exec. No, um, <laughs> I literally Googled, and uh, I was you know hunting around, like trying to understand. Given my background, you know, I went. I went military to a well-established defense tech company that, and so I had no understanding at all of, uh, you know, kind of startup, raising capital, you know, anything, anything to do with that. And so I went to the Google machine and I started trying to understand what was available, what resources were available um, in Texas for early startups and Capital Factory popped up immediately and the more that we dug the more we saw um the more we saw information about the the portfolio and what it meant to be a portfolio company and all the benefits that came along with it the more we just said this seems like it's the place for us and we signed on board and um you know i've said it so many times in, in the interactions i've had with other founders and uh, some of our government stakeholders, it's, um, I can trace so many elements of our early success back to our early participation as a capital factory portfolio company and what great partners capital factory has been to us. That is great to hear. And you, cause you're in San Antonio, right? We're in San Antonio. Right. That's our up and coming city, city of the year. There you go. It's, uh, and, and how'd you end up in San Antonio? Oh, great question. Um, so uh, this little thing called COVID happened. Oh, I heard of that. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I was in San Diego still with my family mm-hmm. um, working at my old company. And everything had shut down. And um, my wife was originally from San Antonio. I was originally from Austin. We both still have family here. And we were like, let's, you know, we need to go be near our family. And so, you know, we packed our whole family up, went down to San Antonio, put roots down, loved it. Alamo City is absolutely amazing. I think it's a a gem that, uh, (laughs) it's a gem that I think gets far too little credit for how amazing, uh, amazing the city is and all, uh, you know, all the beautiful little parts of it. And, uh, and, you know, that's what brought us there, and we've, and we've loved it. And uh, the more forward movement we've had as a company, the more, and the, t- you know, the deeper our ties have uh, become with the Port of San Antonio, uh, with the, you know, the Boeing Center and Tech Port, with um, Lackland and Kelly Field, uh, the more it's just made sense for our home to be there right. as a company, right. as well as, you know, for my family personally. Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> both, both sides of it. Right. I mean, some people may not know, San Antonio is a pretty big DOD city. It is. There, um, there's presence there from obviously the Air Force, the Army. There's a huge um, intel community presence there as well. Um, there is a lot to be done there on the defense tech side. Mm. There are a lot of community stakeholders that are open to working with industry, to finding that connective tissue locally. 
And I think there's a lot more work to be done there to expand that community. This episode of Austinpreneur is brought to you by Iugo. Have you ever felt that your business is stuck or simply it's not growing as you would like it to? Hey, don't worry. We've all been there. Developing and growing a business can be hard, but it doesn't have to be. With Iugo's CFO services, you can unleash your business's true potential by letting them do full financial planning, strategy, and implementation to align with your goals. Visit their website at iugo.com, I-O-O-G-O.com. Did you have any San Antonio investors participate in the round or invest recently? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, one of our earliest investors was Alamo Angels. Yeah. Um, and they have been absolutely phenomenal. They've been our continued partners. They have been so supportive of us. I think there is so much amazing work going on down there between uh, already I already mentioned uh, the tech port and you know the groups that you know Capital Factory is obviously very uh, tightly involved with. Yep. But also Velocity Texas and TRTF right. and just they're the the ties there with Alamo Angels and the the broader plans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. I, I just think it's amazing what they've done, and they've been—they've been, they've been just—they've uh, been great partners to us. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I've been very impressed, and spent a lot of time in San Antonio this year, mm-hmm. ramping things up. Um, and it—it it, it feels like a highly mobilized startup community, and it may not be the most mature, but the leadership is very connected. And it's where, like, we've like as Capital Factory establishing our presence there. It's like we gotta work with these people you know be part of this ecosystem and and it's been a you know a great experience doing that because it's you know it's not like they're just going to come let us do whatever we want but but they have been very supportive and we found ways to work together and it seems like we I feel like we've got san antonio kind of covered now because there's tech port where capital factory's at you know on i guess the the west side ish and then you got geekdom right downtown and you got velocity texas and i've got this little thing i go down you know the fourth friday of every month hit Capital Factory in the morning, geeked them for lunch, Velocity, Texas in the afternoon. I'm home for dinner in Austin. I mean, it's it's coming together. I think it looks really good. It is, yeah, for sure. I mean, and I, I think, you know, figuring out there, there is a, there is a huge, there's a huge network of investors out there and just, just nearby to San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part of it, outside of it, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, the Bernie Angel Network. Mm-hmm. There is, I'll see, Al- Alamo Angels. There's a ton of interest in the space. And I think finding ways to um, help excite and involve yeah. the investors outside of, you know, you know, there's obviously an amazing investment community here in Austin. There's also one right there in that Bear County area. And the more that the more that it can be tapped into, the more we, you know we can uh, excite the local community about defense tech, you know. And not you know, and I know there's more going on in San Antonio than just defense tech, but that's obviously something that I'm very interested in, right? And something that I'm very interested in growing in San Antonio. Um, and I and I think there's a big appetite for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the same way there is in, here is in Austin. I, I'm really I'm really excited to kind of continue to pull the thread on that yeah. in the in the coming months. Yeah. 
it feels a lot like Austin did to me 10, 15 years ago. And there's this excitement around it. There's this buzz. You got to, you know, build it out and it takes, takes a long time to do it. Yeah. And then, so in Velocity, Texas, Alamo Angels, those are sister organizations that roll up to TRTF Foundation. Um, and, and then you also have the geekdom piece as well. And they're, they're tied in. Are there any other organizations or, or startup groups on, on your radar? Not, not necessarily that I'm tracking them. Um, you know, uh, I think the, I think Iris Gonzalez over at, uh, uh, startup San Antonio is, uh, yep. she, she's awesome. Um, you know, I know she's doing a lot of work to try to spread the you know good word about all the great uh, stuff that some of the founders in the area are doing. But yeah, I mean, finding I, I think I think I see kind of those those disparate elements um, across the city, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm really interested to figure out the way that you connect all of them meaningfully and start to kind of draw the community closer together, resources together. Um, because every everybody has you know some complementary resource or attribute to share, and I think there are great, there's great work being done. I mean, they have the you know you know startup week in San Antonio and other things like that. Um, but I haven't necessarily seen the degree of uh, coordination or collaboration that I that I think is uh, is available mm-hmm. is uh, is out there to be had you know, as we really grow. And I think it'll come together naturally just because, as you said, you know, Austin 15 years ago, right? You know, what, what opportunities are there? And I think there's plenty. Yeah. And um, we'll, we'll get there. Right. And, you know, in Austin 15 years ago, the big thing we are talking about is we needed another Dell, right? I think mm-hmm. San Antonio needs another rack space. There you go. Right? And, and I think we got one here on the show. We probably need a couple more. Uh, you know, more. So, so we got Dark Hive. Feeling good about that one. Another, there's actually a handful of really solid companies um, yeah, Plus One Robotics is right. there. Oh, yeah, I love DeLorean one. being down there. I'm, I'm so excited about that. I'm such a, I'm such a nerd. Every time I run into them, I'm sure they're tired of me talking about Back <laughs> to the Future every time I see those guys, but I can't help it, man. Can't stop it. It's just going to happen. <laughs> no. I mean, no. I'm sure they're used to it by now. Yeah, you know, yeah. A few like, decades uh, of cultural cool. symbolism. Yeah, right. You know. <laughs> well, let's maybe talk a little bit more about your the product side of like, you know, really what are you building? We talked about the market a lot and DJI, you know, you've got some fresh funding from the seed round and, and you know, what, what are we, what are you about to put out there and, and what is really special about these drones? The biggest thing for us, uh, you're never going to catch DJI on all, you know, it's taken them over a decade to build the amazing products they have so much so much learning so much trial and error and you know there is a reason why you know they own the chunk of the market that they own whether it's in enterprise drone services whether it's in uh, prosumer or consumer drones uh, they own because they're the best and they they're the best because they've learned so much and it's reflected directly in their products so for us um, understanding that that's the reality. What we're focused on is trying to achieve um, user experience that is optimized for the average person. So, I mean, you see, you know, kind of peppered out there 
in what we communicate externally, this idea of autonomy for everyone. And what I mean by that is that you shouldn't have to be some highly qualified drone pilot to go out and utilize one of these platforms to preserve your life or the life of your team. You should be able to be someone who is extremely competent in the fundamentals of warfare or in public safety and utilize one of these platforms to preserve um, the, you know, preserve the safety of your community, mm-hmm. preserve your own safety, preserve the safety of your team. And so user experience bar, a level of autonomy that really just means that it's easy to use these things and not crash them. And then on the other side of it, if you do crash them, you're not out $30,000 worth of equipment. You're out something relatively affordable. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's really what we're trying to do in the realm of, you know, small quadcopters. Um, you can see pretty plainly in what we have public facing that our drones are really built to be unintimidating, you know, handled physically, not going to hit you, not going to chop your finger off with an exposed propeller. Um, you can, you know, fairly rugged, can take a knock and not break. And then with some of the larger platforms we're developing, that they can go out and perform operations and do so in environments where, again, back to the earlier point, where the point is outcomes, you know, where I can send a drone out and I can um, make my way through a contested electromagnetic spectrum environment where GPS is denied, where communication is denied. Again, you're never going to beat DJI when it comes to the experience of piloting one of their prosumer drones. But maybe I don't need to if I'm very much addressing military or public safety-specific use cases. I don't need to have, you know, cinema-ready drone feeds, you know, and, you know, know, 4K feeds. What I need is a drone that can survive in an environment where an adversary is actively trying to deny my ability to uh, find my local position Mm -hmm. and navigate to a point in order to understand what threat may exist there. So I think by targeting that and targeting user experience, we're hopefully going to arrive at something that will check the box for enough people to achieve the scale we need to achieve the price that we need. And I think that's that's mostly what we're focused on right now. Right. Doing it in a way where you don't have to risk lives to go back and retrieve this thing because yeah. it's so expensive. Deliver outcome and then that thing right. never needs to come back. The, you know what this reminds me of when you start talking about mm-hmm. it is is uh, the, the Mission Impossible glasses that, that explode <laughs> after he gets the message. Yep. It's like, I mean, uh, that's, that's, actually very, that's actually very fair. You know, okay, cool. Information consumed. Who cares? Right. Should go away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we have this conflict in Ukraine, and, and it, it, from what I'm hearing, just at Fed Supernova, et cetera, I mean, drones are a hot topic in this. Yes. Why is this kind of the surprising new part of the battlefield right now? And what, 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 tell us more about how they're being used over there other than maybe, you know, yeah, just kind of going to see where someone's at or things like that. Yeah, great question. Um. I think what has been most shocking to people, you know, in, in I'll, I'll just call it in, you know, the United States and, you know, Department of Defense and, you know, some of our partners who are, you know, call them, a, 
you know, we'll, we'll call them the you know countries that are used to kind of having you know first world military defense systems, um, is the extent to which we have collectively uh, as a country and with our partners and even from industry tried to push our solutions to them and the extent to which those solutions have not been preferred mm. or ready for military. And I'm thinking, I'm speaking like strictly on the tactical level. There's a lot of stuff that we're providing them that is absolutely amazing. Like, you know, their missile defense systems and other things like that that are, um, that are unparalleled. Right. And they're providing immense value. Right. And we're no, not and doing no one, that with drones. Yeah. And no one, and no one would, yeah, no one would, con, no one would, uh, would say otherwise. But when it comes to drones, when it comes to tactical drones, um, the only platforms that are proving to be uh, the go-to and the most reliable are DJI or right. Yeah, Autel. it's the same thing we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. We're just and not even in the game. No, and, uh, and I think uh, Ukraine has changed the conversation. It has uh, gone from these you know, exquisite platforms that we sink you know, hundreds of million do- millions of dollars into for production down to um, Ukrainian companies who are literally 3D printing PCBs in the shape of a drone frame, mounting a camera, doing a few solder points for motors, strapping a grenade to it, and then taking some COTS FPV goggles and piloting a grenade direct into Russian armor or into a, um, you know, into a bunker. And it's wild. For $300 again. Right. It's $300. And, and I think we just keep missing the mark on this where we in U.S. industry observe that. And, and I hear the conversation spin up where it's like, well, we could build a company around that. And they start building product around it. And they start wrapping it in, you know, 3D printed plastics and all these other things. And before you know it, you have a, you know, $10,000 drone. A scope creep. Yeah. And, and, and. And then when you go back to the point of what it is that Ukraine has built, they say, why are you wrapping that in plastic? I'm literally going to blow it up. <laughs> like, who cares? And I think that, um, you know, this is, this is just the, the divergence between uh, the need, the necessity, what makes sense, and then uh, the divergence into, you know, U.S.-based, you know, product manufacturing uh, perspective. Right. It's this balance between invention, cutting edge invention and practical application. You know, yeah, it's like exactly. you want it to be advanced, but sometimes it's, it's, it's not about all the bells and whistles and, and, you know, but it's more about like, can you solve the problem? It's about you know, what works, right? What you know, works. it's about what works. And sometimes again, I think back to, you know, what, uh, what we were, talking about earlier with regards to lessons taken from military experience and the answer is sometimes you've got nothing to sell here like you know u.s industry u.s industry walking in and saying you know well i could build this for you and i could make it a million times better because i'm u.s and the ukrainians say you're not going to do it anywhere nearly as good or as cheap as i will and by the way, I'm making 10,000 of, 10, of these a month already. Right. What right. are you going to give me that I don't already right. have? Right. Except for maybe more 
um, raw material for PCB production. Right. Yeah. yeah. Basic, basic items. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and even if they could, it's, they need that now, you know, and it's, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's, a, it takes a, yeah, it's gotta be pragmatic rubber meets the road yeah. and really understanding where you can fit and provide value and where you can't. Yeah. And I guess as we wrap it up, you know, how have you seen broadly how the DOD engages with startups evolve, right? From your, your time working with the SEALs to, to now you're being a defense startup. You know, how has that changed? Good question. Um, I'll say we've come, we've come a little farther than when I was still in, but I still think we are... Um, I still think there, there are amazing mechanisms out there for industry to access the government and to get, you know, things like we've been talking about, non-dilutive capital through Sibber-Sitter, and that's, that's excellent. One of the things that I still see um, the DOD struggling with that would be the most meaningful for small businesses is the means by which small business accesses real requirements coming directly from operators. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that uh, DOD service components, special operations uh, at the service component level, they all offer opportunities, scheduled opportunities, to interact with and receive user feedback on products that are being developed. But those scheduled activities are often participated in by individuals that are outside the context of their operational role for a number of reasons I could dig into. On the DOD side? On the DOD side. And scheduled activities are not going to yield the kind of results the DOD wants. And what I mean by that is, very specifically, I don't want to go to a joint exercise to have my technology evaluated in a pool of a hundred others. What I want to do is I want to go out to unit training and as a part of a block where my technology would notionally be integrated if successful. So I'll take the ones that I'm familiar with and say urban combat, land warfare, close quarters combat. I don't want to go to a joint exercise as a part of a scheduled activity with 100 other technologies. I want to have some salty users who really don't necessarily know if they want me there evaluating my technology in the middle of conducting the activity that my technology will be involved in. Mm. The DOD does not do a good job of providing Mm. those opportunities. Mm. Those opportunities have to be scraped together. And the units want them too is the point. The units want to see whether or not that technology can provide meaningful value in those scenarios outside of joint exercise environments. Right. And I would say that the, the DOD has come a long way in some regards. AFWorks does it the best. I freaking love AFWorks. Just got done singing their praises upstairs. They I would sing their praises. The I know I would yell it. I love, <laughs> I love everything AFWorks that I've worked with all the services. Um, but that it's that gap remains. That gap we have not come very far mm. from where mm. I, when I was still running around doing things in 2016. Right, we are still not providing right. industry relevant access. It's to like users. it's like the ultimate. How do you get feedback from your users? Problem. 
as an yeah. entrepreneur, right? And like yeah. for any entrepreneur, it's like go out, talk to customers, talk to, you know, users. It's, you know, a little harder when it's an enterprise and some CEO executive you got to get to, you know, you're talking about people in, in combat and other countries and, you know, going and, and getting into it. And yeah. 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 DOD needs to open the doors for industry to connect directly with operators with real-world feedback coming directly from the front line. John, it's been great you know, watching you from a distance. I haven't spent a ton of time directly, but we're excited to be involved, excited to be in the, the round and have you in the portfolio and have you as a you know, flagship company down in San Antonio. So thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out CapitalFactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at CapitalFactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible. And special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode. Mm-hmm.